in a world in the year 2017 in a time of tradition in a city where anything can happen in a war that isn't his every day in new york city on the miami police force in the deep south everybody this is justin and welcome to late fees where we are in the mobile video cart movie store i don't know what we're doing what are we doing we're in the drive-in now because somebody, yeah, yeah. somebody has a drive-in gimmick <laughs> yeah there's i think there's more than one drive-in gimmick there's multiple driving gimmicks we well, cannot it's, do it's, drive-in. it's you so the 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 itunes uh cloud store oh yeah uh, <laughs> we are <currently laughs> justin won't stop cloud. fucking buying digital movies 399 what is it i want it i i bought one of the movies that we're going to talk about today but yes <laughs> we are here on <laughs> on late fees uh welcome back uh, of course i'm justin here with pat who you already heard as well as eric who makes his triumphant return i always have to say return even though you were here last time i think i think you were here last time no that was uh, toxic yeah, avenger it was wes it was wes yeah. it was wes we wes did a double feature for us last time uh, we, we are, you know, currently still, we're still distancing, even though distancing seems to be getting closer and closer to actual in-person uh, meetings, right, guys? It's the numbers are, the numbers are, uh, I mean, they're bad. Uh, but, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but they're uh, they're as good as they've uh, been since the, the spring, literally the spring so that's fucking I said crazy. since it started. When I say since, well, it's funny that we're doing this on September 10th, uh, day before September 11th. And if you listen to the show, you know that is when I say <laughs> that everything changed. We will have plenty of everything changes moments on this episode because there's some <laughs> problematic things in these movies. We're gonna get to that a little bit later. But uh, one one big change we have obviously is uh, today we have a guest. Uh, you, you guys may know him from all of his movie reviews, which are spectacular, and his YouTube channel, Armchair Autor. We have Dom Griffin in the house. What's up, Dom? Hey, what's up, man? Thanks for having me on, guys. Hey, Dom, I, I have a question to, to start us off. <laughs> Why did you name it Armchair Autor and not the movie Mandime? <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, when I started that channel, I had, I had like, I had, I had started planning to do it like a year before I ever did a video. And I came up with that name because I thought it was really like cool. And I was going to like have a friend do like some art and me like in a, an armchair. I don't actually own an armchair. So a lot of my videos <laughs> are just kind of couch. People were like, where's the armchair? I'm like, it's not a literal armchair. You guys know that. Right? <laughs> no, yeah. it, it's, it's a great name. It, it rolls off the tongue nicely. Uh, but yeah, it, I'm thrilled to see you, man. I, I was saying when we were off mic that this is like a seven year digital friendship in the making. Man. Yeah, for real, man. I, I think you and I first connected back in like 2013 when we were both being horny on Maine for Colin Farrell. <laughs> yes, I think that actually what it was, yeah. And you guys still are. I, I, uh, <laughs> the, the Batman, the Batman trailer Penguin dropped. prosthetics and all. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. The Batman trailer came out three weeks ago. 
And that's something that I guess this is a, gr a great segue to jump into since we're talking Colin Farrell. The Batman trailer dropped three weeks ago. The, I drop it. I'm so excited. I'm like, Robert looks great. The cinematography looks amazing. This is exactly what I wanted from a Batman movie, which is what I say every decade. But um, <laughs> all, this motherfucker, all this motherfucker Eric can talk about is Colin Farrell. All he's doing is talking about Colin Farrell. I'm like, there's more to the movie. than He's not the star. He, he is literally in the trailer for uh, two shots combined, combined yeah. half a second total. Blink, blink and you miss it. And uh, that's enough for me, baby. I'm sold. It is really funny that this, I mean, somebody, well, somebody, probably 30 people posted it immediately. Like, he just looks like Richard Kind now. Like, exactly they literally, kind, yeah. they, he spent nine hours in a makeup chair, and he, look, he looks just like Richard Kind. Yeah, he he just called Richard Kind. He's free. He's probably yeah. free. Yeah. He, he would have been, uh, I don't know, I don't know that he could have, uh, could have handled Penguin. Um, the most neurotic Jewish Penguin ever. <laughs> uh, speaking of speaking of the Batman penguins, all that stuff, I we've all watched the trailer. We saw it on the DC Fandom event, uh, which I think aired the weekend after we dropped last. But uh, yeah. how did you guys feel about it? I, I thought it was amazing. Of course, there's news coming out, and you know it's tragic. Everything changed. Hashtag everything changed news because Rodden Patterson, Robert Patterson, currently can't even film because he caught COVID, so he's not gonna, he's not gonna be able to film until like maybe a week and a half from now. But uh, I thought the trailer was was fantastic. I, I think it looks really good. The, yeah. the theories and everything coming out of it. And, and I think Math Matthew Reeves, just hearing that man, I would love for him, anyone to talk about anything about myself or anything in life as excited as he talks <laughs> about Batman in that uh, interview. But how'd you guys feel about the trailer? Uh, it, I will say as far as like just the, a trailer goes, I didn't think it was the best trailer, but it did make me think that the movie looked incredibly well made and I'm excited to see it. Uh, and also, Paul Dano, uh, his voice is great. Uh, I love the little riddle in the trailer. Uh, mm. What does a liar do when he's dead? He lies still. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great. great. That's, yeah. that's Pafif bars right there. That's, it's, it's great. Uh, yeah, I, I was mad that I didn't think of it after the trailer came out. <laughs> and then I said, what am I getting mad about? I literally, this literally came out of nothing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, looks, it looks awesome. I yeah. mean, the, the, it's going to be... If it's as good as the second Apes movie, please let it be. Oh, that'll that'll be enough. Uh, yeah, same vibe. But I, you know, I I really try to temper my expectation with trailers because you know I've, I've been uh, sold a bag of goods before. But fool it, me it, can't it, get fooled again. Right. <laughs> but it does that thing. What, that what I sold love. you? A, what, what sold you a false uh, bill of goods? What 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 sold you? What? Just in general. Yeah. The last what movie that really gave me the okie doke with like a great trailer and the movie was kind of mid was um Prometheus? No, what? I Take still it back. I, this is still Prometheus <laughs> Hive. Prometheus Hive here. No, but it, it does the thing that I love where it's like this really slow burn where it's like very moody and atmospheric, and then all of a sudden there's like a kind of a a Christopher Nolan womp, and then Batman gives a 12-piece combo to somebody. <laughs> Bone-crunching jabs. I'm like, all right, we're, we're here, baby. Matt Reeves got us. I think we're in good hands. Yeah, uh, Dom, you, you put out a video, not directly about the trailer, but about kind of like the social media reaction, which I also get annoyed with about people saying, all Batman does is beat up uh, the entire like Batman slander Twitter account yeah. or whatever. Where it's just, like, let's just collect all of the shitty, barely funny like Batman jokes into one account. Yeah, I, I thought the trailer was great, and I thought that like the movie looks really good, and it's like I had so many things about it I really liked. 
and I felt really good about it. And then like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do the thing I always do when I enjoy something. I'm going to go let the internet fucking ruin it for me. <laughs> immediately, I just saw nothing but people being like, I mean, we have to talk about what Batman means in a post-George Floyd world. And I'm just like, what if you <laughs> fuck up instead? Like, what if you just didn't? Uh, we are... We are so online poisoned that like, yeah, it's like it's, pop culture is now identity. It's like we like the pendulum has swung so far that like people are so woke that they're fucking asleep at the wheel. I hate it so much. Bro, it's well, so I, bad. It's so I, bad. I think what killed me, what killed it with me was like, I've been seeing these kind of takes forever and like they always are not connected to any real Batman thing. Like Batman comics mm. aren't like this anymore at all. No, the right. Batman, the closest you could actually get to this is the Nolan movies and that's like years ago at this point so it just seems yeah. weird to keep making these same corny jokes about it but i think what, what made me like what broke my brain about it was like i saw so many people posting batman takes about like like that guy had like that thread about like oh what if we made joe chill a crooked cop and batman spent his whole life fighting police brutality and all this shit and people huh? was like, I don't, oh maybe you guys didn't see this but there was like a dude who had this whole like it's just fan fiction at this point right people are like, <laughs> pop culture they write these twitter threads that are just fan fiction and for whatever reason, this one went big in like the space of Twitter that I'm on or whatever. And it was all these people being like, this is so interesting. This would change Batman, make it more modern. And I'm like, I know if I know for a fact when I go through this guy's Twitter profile, he's going to be uh, adding leftists, telling them why they need to vote for Joe Biden. And I just can't <laughs> live in a world where like you have time in, in your day to like complain about Batman, who is fictional like talking about defunding Bruce Wayne, who is not a real person, but then in real life, when you actually go vote, you will not ask real politicians for the same thing. And that's what really made me snap was like, you guys are really on the internet today and you are like cool with the fact that Joe Biden doesn't want to defund the police. And you're like cramming him down people's throats, but you're like, you know, what we really need to fix Gotham City. <laughs> you gotta go into Gotham and change things for the fictional people that live there. I read on that- Terrorized by a billionaire. Yeah, I, I read on that same thread that uh, Bruce Wayne was the architect of the crime bill in '94. <laughs> oh my God! All, all right, uh, one, one thing that I that I did really really enjoy about the trailer. Uh, one more thing is, is I love how upfront it is. Like they give you Batman right there. Like yeah. like in all the other movies, he's in the shadow. He's moving out. You don't see him at all. I think the first Batman Begins trailer, it didn't even look like a Batman movie. You see him in the final two seconds, and then that's it. This one is just like, here he is, front and center. There he is throughout the whole trailer. He's here. This is who he is. No bullshit. That's just, I think that's the way to go for it. Um, what do you, like, as far as, and this, this is for you, Dom, like, as far as, like, the overarching DC strategy, what do you feel about their movies right now? How they're saying, okay, you know what? We want to give everybody a chance to do whatever the fuck they want to do. I think it's the right call, man. I mean, like, I know people, I know Marvel's, like, winning right now or whatever. Because <laughs> he did air quotes there. Who, who they are, you know what I'm saying? But, like. <laughs> We'll see. Point. We'll see after That's, this. We're at a point now where, like, at post-Endgame, they don't have anything lined up that anyone, I think, is really excited about. Like, they say they are, but no one gives a fuck about, like, Division or whatever. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> Meanwhile, DC is like, look, we can just make a bunch of stuff. Like, we own all these characters. We can have fucking four Batman at once. Who gives a shit? Someone is going to like one of these Batman, you know? And I'm with that. I mean, some of these movies are probably going to suck. I mean, like, that you know but i'm way more excited about something where like a movie might be good or it might be bad or it might be fun or it might be whatever versus like i know exactly what this is going to be like and i'm not mm-hmm. going to care one way or the other that's yeah. how i feel now so like i'm excited about flashpoint i think that could be really cool i'm excited about this batman movie i'm excited about like 
the weird stuff they're going to do with like the rock is black Adam or whatever. Like they That's announced been a long that. time in the making. Yeah. yeah he's just been sure. attached to this for like a decade or something. So there's that. And like James Gunn suicide squad movie looks like it's going to be fun. I mean, I'm only saying that cause Cena's in it, but like I'm still going <laughs> to see it. Um, they're doing stuff. I think, I just think letting different filmmakers actually attempt to make something cool, whether or not it works is a better proposition for coming up with good movies than just like slotting people into the same MCU sleeve. You know, like, bullshit. Well, yeah. people are so hyped for uh, Nadia Costa getting to direct Captain Marvel 2. And I'm like, you know, the people that made Captain Marvel 1 were good filmmakers before they made Captain Marvel as well. So like, that <laughs> I loved Half Nelson. I think Mississippi Grind's a cool movie. Captain I mean, Marvel this, is still trash. This, this <laughs> phenomenon is going on like, literally like coming up a decade from now where like i mean the first time i really remember it happening was uh i loved uh safety not guaranteed mm-hmm. and then they were like oh trevor is doing uh, jurassic world i was like oh, wait why, why? <laughs> yeah what's happening <laughs> uh and then they were like it, and it wasn't quite the same thing but like edgar wright is doing ant-man which obviously uh that yeah, uh was kind of a harbinger of uh where they would go directionally but it was like why are these why are they doing this? Why this guy had $8 million and two small time actors. And now he has hundred million. Like who are you trying to win over here? And it's still happening. Yeah. It's sort of the, it sort of exposes the you know, diminishing returns of trying to, you know, cater so hard to pan uh, to fan service where you literally uproot these very singular talents. I'm not saying Trevor was a singular talent, but like, the guy had an indie vision that felt unique at a point. Mm-hmm. Or somebody like, our, uh, who I really like, uh, like Ryan Coogler, who like, I won't get to see make another Fruitvale Station probably for 15 years because he's going to be in the MCU. Like, I'm glad he's getting the bag or whatever, but like, I don't like when they take these indie darlings who, who are deserved of a bigger platform, but like, they, they keep them in a dungeon. Like, it's like um, Ryan, Ryan Johnson. Like, I'd rather see him make 10 knives out a year than one fucking star wars movie you yeah know I mean? it's uh yeah it's it's that push pull that i feel with these uh corporate studios sort of just cannibalizing everything and uh speaking of ryan coogler i would be you know i would be remiss to not mention uh the passing of chad with bozeman uh you know once again this happened two weeks ago you know really terrible really shocking i think people just didn't yeah. have the words for it um still doesn't feel real yeah it it, it just I still don't have the words for it. Maybe one day I will. Um, some of my pals over at Black Variant, who's also on this channel, um, they had a, a really great um, postmortem uh, just on his career and 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 just you know everything that that's gone on and and you know just just terrible. And, and again, like with Ryan Coogler, you know who knows if they go back to. I don't think. I mean, me personally, I don't think they should think about Black Panther or anything like that for the next ten years because that there's Chadwick was the guy. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, they shouldn't even I think mean, about replacing it's so, him. Like, you can just picture, like, what what's the character's name? Shuri? That's his sister? Yeah. Yeah. So the, people are like, oh, she'll be, she'll be Black Panther. I'm like, okay, but, like, let's say they make that movie five years from now. You can yeah. just picture it starting, like, low synth, d- cool tones, like, we're going in. It's it's a funeral. And you're, it's like, oh, fuck me. Don't do this. <laughs> Uh, and you like it's so easy like that it's, it's raining or something you know fuck it not worth his it. actual last shot in a movie is an endgame and he's at like tony's funeral 
Mm -hmm. So it's like, I understand why people want to pivot to Shuri and stuff like that and, you know, girl power, whatever. But like, I don't, I don't, I mean, like, I don't know. I don't care if we never get a Black Panther 2, but if we do, I would like it to not open up with like T'Challa, this like incredible like Marvel character that people have like mm -hmm. loved for years is just dead now. And like, we, like, we got to relive Chadwick's actual death in this movie. Yeah. There's no way to write that off screen. That's like meaningful. Right. How do you open a movie right. with like, the main character is dead because the actor's dead. And like, you guys all know that. And go. Now we're back to sci-fi fantasy. <laughs> now it's back to comedy and Beyonce lines. Yeah, yeah and right. Like and that. like, you know, what are those Vine jokes and stuff? And I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm probably okay. Yeah, like there's like yeah. this, this, yeah, like you're saying, like, reliving his actual death. And then there's like a, like a joke with Martin Freeman in the next scene. <laughs> and <you're> like, <laughs> yeah, not, not, not your fault, Martin Freeman. I'm, I'm just, you, you're, just you're, you're just there in this fictional, fictional world. I, I, I respect you. I can't think of a better send-off than how we saw him in Five Bloods. And yes. I, I know that might sound weird because he, he was killed by Friendly Fire in that movie, but, like, he is the sort of one-man Greek chorus that guides these people that, you know, he's his literal brothers um, through this terrible time. And, um, yeah, I mean... I think, that, about the, I think about the hug, that hug in, 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 in the movie. Oh, God, yeah. And, like, that you know, seems I, I think... Yeah, I've been critical of some of his performances in the past. I thought he was incredible in Jackie or, or 42. I thought he was incredible in um, as James Brown. So I really liked what he did in Five Bloods because it, it felt like that is a star. There was star power to that, what is essentially like a cameo. It's yeah, like he's uh, almost too big for it. Yeah, it's like yeah. you have to have someone with that larger than life persona off screen to sort of play this sort of like Jesus figure, you know? And uh, yeah, uh, it's a incalculable incalculable loss to, uh, yes. to the arts. uh let's let's i know it's bummer bummer talk bummer let's talk, talk about something nice let's talk about something nice uh have you guys seen that tom cruise we're back at the movies video yeah Absolutely it's the class. greatest thing of all time and actually it's funny <laughs> you say that because i not to just go back to the dark thing we were just talking about but i was actually watching vanilla sky for the first time when i saw the chadwick news and it like it made Vanilla Sky like probably so much more emotional than it normally would have been. I was like, "This is the weirdest fucking movie ever," and I can't <laughs> and barely handle it. Uh, it was it was rough, uh, but it, it you know Tom Cruise uh, King. What what can you say? He he came out of nowhere with the video of the year. So it it is a return to the <laughs> movies. They're back. Two weeks ago they weren't back. Now they're back. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Tenet is out. Uh, I Wonder loved Woman. it. When, <laughs> uh, Wonder Woman and other movies, they're kind of iffy. I think Dune is supposed to come out in December completely. You know, I think what too. you're saying now is like Tenet opens so soft. Like even for like the COVID uh, assumptions and stuff, it opens so badly that they're going to have to move Wonder Woman and Dune so that Tenet can be the only movie out long enough to make some money i think it made like 20 million dollars this past labor day weekend but that includes what it made in canada which is weird like they won't they won't say what it made only in america like that's like all of north america yeah canada where it's not a holiday weekend either yeah right like it's just a weird it's a weird thing and like i i don't really know man i mean i'm kind of waiting to find out what disney made on mulan because like i've been crunching numbers and i think that even if like they had not the highest number of downloads for Mulan at $30 at them keeping all the money. They probably made more money this weekend than Warner Brothers did off a of tenant in the States anyway. Yes. And like, absolutely. Probably. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't there's know so that many people who work. just have to have that shit on auto download. Like, and there are, there, I mean, I'm not doing it for Mulan, but there is shit that I would pay. There was a point when they would have, if they would have said, hey, $30 to watch Tenet at home, I would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah. sign me up. And now I'm like, I mean, oh, for real, oh, if they had done it with Tenet, I think it would have done better than theatrical, even though thousand, it's not like the way Nolan wants it. Like, yeah. You know, if at you this point, like he doesn't get, get that anyway. Watch, who cares? Yeah, I mean, they, they have to, they're, they're pulling back now. At first they said only in theaters. Now, just got announced a couple of hours ago, Tenet will be playing in drive-ins uh, starting this weekend. They, WB had to take that punch in the mouth and say like, and again, this is, you know, I, I, we can argue about their responsibility and, and, and how right this is, but, you know, they're still learning the new marketplace. And if drive-ins are, are the new thing, then they have to go with that. And I think the WB won't be trying any shit like that again because they know they're not going to make any money doing it. But I don't see what's wrong with doing drive-ins if you still want to do that, if that's your thing. And then being able to have it in your home, if you know you're, if, if you're super, you know, I'm quarantining, I'm not going out. And I think that's, that's an option that they just have to face and they have to do. Like, there, there's, no, there's no way around it. Um, Wait, hey, I want to ask Dom something real quick. Dom, is there, and I, I might be totally creating this, but is, is there something that prevents certain movies like Tenant from screening at the drive-in style theaters if they're screening theatrically? So normally, no, but um, I think that Warner Brothers did a thing where they had, they were, they were not going to allow any drive-ins in markets where theaters weren't open like normal to get the movie. With okay. the idea being that later when that market opens, they don't want there to be people in that market who are already, who've already done it. So like I went to a drive-in in Virginia cause like Virginia's open. Um, but their drive-ins and like on the, like in the Maryland DC area, like can't get it. And I, I assume they will be able to now probably because they didn't make any fucking money this weekend. So they have a choice. <laughs> um, but like, it's, I, I gotta say like, so I, I saw, I saw their drive-in and it was like a, not a good experience because the drive-in I went to was like weird. And like it rained and like my friend's cars, like radio wasn't working. So like I missed audio for the second half of the movie. Oh no. You can't really watch this movie without audio because the whole movie is someone telling you what's actually happening. Yeah. <laughs> at, this, at this point, his movies are hard to watch with audio. Yeah. So <laughs> I will say like, if you are, if like you don't run into radio problems, like my friend and I did hearing it at a drive-in is kind of better because the audio for the movie, like everyone complains about Christian Nolan's like audio mixes mm -hmm. and stuff. When you have that in a car, you can hear dialogue a lot more cleanly than you will in a theater where like the mix of where the dialogue is and the audio gets yeah. kind of like muffled. So, I mean, I think the drive-in is kind of the perfect place. I mean, I had a bad experience, but like, I think for <laughs> other people, it's the perfect way to see the movie because like, you don't have to be next to anybody. You're in a car with like someone, I assume that you like know or are like quarantining with or whatever. And you can usually get, you know, park in a spot where you get a pretty good image of the entire picture. And like, it's cool. And also like every other car near you has the sound cranking too. So like you still get that kind of like immersive uh, audio feeling. Yeah. And I gotta be real. I mean, like in a normal year, I can see people going like, tenant isn't going to work unless you see it on an IMAX screen and stuff. But like, as long as it's a big enough screen, man, like it's not like, I felt like interstellar. You kind of need to see it in IMAX because that's the only way some of that movie works is because of the size and scope. Mm -hmm. But tennis just like regular size big. It's not like space <laughs> big. It's just like shit blowing up. People getting shot. It's not. Yeah, I mean, it could, I saw crazy. I saw the car go and rewind on the highway. I know it's it, <laughs> yeah, like it's not it's not nuts. You know what I mean? But like, it's a fun movie. It's just it, I will say that I feel like Nolan and Warner Brothers made a, a mistake by feeding into the mythology that this was going to save the theater industry oh, because no. the movie is 
I think very good. I, I like it. I, I, I'm excited to see it again at some point in my life uh, in, in non-camera form, but it's, it's not a movie <laughs> that you can, um, you know, it's not, it's hard to emotionally connect to, I would say. And mm-hmm. it's not the kind of movie that like makes people want to leave the house and go do something. You know, I think mm-hmm. like if any generic Marvel movie came out right now, maybe not Black Widow, but like any other generic Marvel movie, <laughs> I think more people would go back to the theaters because they have that weird Disney-fied emotional connection to the story. Do you and feel like, like Wonder do you feel like Wonder Woman could be that movie? I don't think Wonder Woman can be either because I don't think that many people like really give a fuck about Wonder Woman. Like even if yeah. you liked Wonder Woman, I don't think anybody is like, I have to go experience this. You know, like yeah. like Dune's not gonna be that movie either because it's like fucking probably be three hours long and like really dark down the whole time. Yeah, and like, like people don't, people in real life don't know what Dune is. <laughs> yeah, bro, like, if you go see, if you go see Dune in a drive-in, your car is going to die. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's that long. Your car is going to die. They have to like, they have, because my big thing with drive-ins is like, I'm afraid to turn my car because I have to turn it on just to start the battery up. And people like, they'll turn around like, yeah, stop, like, it. Stop, stop idling. Like, I don't know how you, you know how this works, but you need to. Yeah, it's, I, it's I think so stupid. I mean, our, our uh, car died the first time we uh, we went. Uh, we had to jump, oh, we were yeah. jumping the car like Michael Scott. <laughs> uh, okay, so we, we have done s- quite the catch up session here. Uh, so we have to talk about this, this episode's uh, subject. Of course, you've seen the title. We're talking about Michael Mann today. Legend, auteur. He was born in 1943, guys. This motherfucker's old as shit. Let me yeah. just tell you. <laughs> he's still kicking. He, well, actually, he hasn't made something in a minute. He, but he's done, it. he's done enough, okay? He's done enough. Uh, he was born in Chicago, Illinois. He's, he is, he is, uh, he's one of, the, one of the greatest Jews in filmmaking. I'm looking at Eric right there. One of the, one of the greatest Jews in filmmaking. I was like, where Michael are you going with this? <laughs> I'm going all over the place, baby. I, I was, I'm on the edge of my seat here. I heard greatest Jew. My, my neck hair popped up. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Okay, well, I was first introduced to Michael Mann. Uh, I mean, unknowingly, obviously, my parents probably rented Heat a million times. I didn't know it was him. But when I knew it was him, it was probably 2004's Collateral. Uh, where were you guys introduced to Michael Mann? Uh, what movie was kind of like the jump off point for you? S- similar, um, similar trajectory. I remember being shit, eight years old in 1994 when my parents went out on like a date night with the neighbors, like a husband and wife couple to go see Heat. And I just remember like my, my dad and then the husband of the other couple being like, complete like my dad you know my dad he's a fucking nerd just like milk toast chew came back like yeah dude like (laughs) (laughs) like, completely jacked up on testosterone from the you know from the now iconic uh uh, tech tech fetish and 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 shootout scenes that are now you know just instant iconography and you know would lay the sort of blueprint for how he shoots sequences and just choreographs these amazing shootouts but yeah, I, I don't think I knew, I, I, would grow, I would have to be a little older to later understand what Michael Mann was really trying to do with that stuff, which, you know, he's the most pro-worker filmmaker, I think, in, <laughs> in, the, in the history of cinema. I mean, the guy, he, he loves professional men at work and has a deep admiration for the work they do and, and sort of the, the identity they have to try to split to find themselves outside this job that they do very well. 
Uh, but uh, long, short story long, I would say it probably wasn't until Ali, 2001 Ali, that I was like, okay, I know, I get who Michael Mann is. Uh, and I fell in love with his filmmaking. And, and yeah, Collateral really, really took it to another level. And then, of course, we'll talk to, about Miami Vice, which is God level. Uh, between, <laughs> between Collateral and Heat, n- nobody has made a pair of better L.A highway exit movies the the di- the dialogue when they t- i mean some of the routes tom cruise wants to take in collateral are a little questionable but uh the you the, know what they, they're I, I so specific seen, i haven't seen collateral since i moved here so maybe i need oh, to you watch that and, and and hear uh some of the crazy shit that like, there, there's a part in heat when al pacino's screaming about an exit and i'm like oh fuck like no <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what about you, Don? What was the first time uh, uh, tapping into Michael Mann? So I will say, like you, I think it was Collateral in 04, because I was like in high school at the time. Uh, it was when I first like started like knowing who Michael Mann was and like reading interviews with him and like becoming obsessive about it. But like the first Michael Mann movie I saw where I knew who Michael Mann was, but I didn't know because I was still a kid, was like Manhunter. I watched that when I was like like eleven, maybe. Like I watched a lot of like ah questionable adult movies with my mom when I was a kid. That's a cam age check. That's a cam age check. a dumb age check. <laughs> and she would just be like, I would, like, if I didn't get something, she would just explain it to me. So like when we were watching Manhunter, I'd seen Silence of the Lambs already and was confused why Anthony Hopkins wasn't Animal Lecter. And then she like told me like, oh no, this is from like the 80s. This is like Michael Mann, the guy that created Miami Vice. So that's how I always knew him as a kid was like the guy that created Miami Vice. Uh, and then with Collateral, I was like, oh, this man is like, the king of everything. <laughs> watched every movie he ever made after that. Yeah, no, no. Michael Mann, I mean, he, he's a god. I mean, from, from screen all the way to the small screen. Uh, he did TV. Uh, obviously, he, he did, you know, he executive produced and wrote for Miami Vice, which he would return to uh, years later. He did, he did Crime Story. He did Luck. 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 Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, you know, now he has Tokyo Vice in development. I don't know if you guys heard about that. Executive producer on Hancock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was completely <laughs> random. But uh, he, he is one of the, you know, I, I'd say that, like, you know, as far as, like, directors, I don't hear his name as much, like, in the upper echelon as you might hear about the, the, the De Palmos and the Tarantinos. Like, I don't hear Michael Mann a lot. Like, him and Soderbergh, who we also did an episode on, I think are, like, two unsung directors who've just done great stuff throughout their career. No one really... I don't want to say underrated because Michael Mann's breadth of work is really long and he did a lot of shit, but yeah, it's all it over almost the place. feels that way. Yeah. But why do you guys feel like that? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm very on brand with this, but like, it's tricky. I, I don't think it's a coincidence. It, it's probably not this serious, but like they are <laughs> two, like I was going to say Soderbergh is probably the closest spiritual successor to this director who is obsessed with like the moxie of the working class all his movies are about workers too and uh individuals coming together in solidarity to sort of take on a bigger corrupt system whether it's uh was it lucky lucky um was it logan lucky logan lucky and lucky number 11 (laughs) 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 or even like high flying bird which is literally about like seizing the means of production from the nba and like uh, exploited labor. Um, they, there's a there's a thematic through line to all their work. I think they have totally different styles of um, approaches to their style. But yeah, it, it, they don't make for as 
beautifully shot and as exciting as their movies are, they don't make overly flashy movies, if that makes sense. It's like there's a subtlety to their detail, if that <laughs> – it's, there, well, it's like hard, it's hard to put the words. Like Thief is a heist movie, but it's like about serious guys. Like same yeah. thing with Miami Vice. Like it's an action movie, but it's incredibly melodramatic, and it's like about two serious guys. And like, like, <laughs> like he makes thrillers, but like they're so serious. Like it's. Well, I don't think it's just that they're so serious. I think it's, it's also romantic. like Michael Mann is not a filmmaker who people emulate very easily. So like mm-hmm. a lot of the big directors, everyone considers to be big heavy hitters. It's like. Scorsese, Tarantino, De Palma, they're all people who like some shitty person has like poorly faked a lot. Yes. And like no one is out here really trying to rip off Michael Mann because it's like hard. Like his actual style and like how much research and like real life shit he puts in his movies. Like if you wanted to ate Michael Mann, you would just, you know, like shoot stuff that looks kind of like heat, but no one is ever going to be able to replicate like Fee for like um, or like even like something like the Jericho Mod, the first movie he made for television, even that movie is very distinctive to the way Michael Mann tells stories. And like, no one's out here trying to like rip him off. Like no one's what? out here trying to rip off Steven Soderbergh either. <laughs> yeah. Like how would you even like- It's, it's funny you say that because I was, I was rewatching Heat or um, Thief this morning, finishing it up. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, the opening of Drive is the opening of Thief. Like yeah, no dialogue, minute, a very good driver in his car. It's like this- synth music sort of pulsating and you see the serious guy behind the wheel like i think you're exactly right like everyone knows when you're emulating hitchcock or de palma with like split diopters and shit Mm -hmm. uh or like zoom zoom zolly shots like it it, said it's like the subtlety you can't replicate uh it makes it that much different difficult yeah and uh uh, you know to, to go on that after the break we will be talking about four movies for michael mann uh we're gonna be talking about thief that which eric just mentioned uh, Manhunter, Ali, and Miami Vice. But before we go to break, I just realized, or I didn't just realize it, I knew it, but before we even did this episode, a couple of months ago, I think maybe a month and a half, two months ago, I watched The Keep from Michael Mann. I still haven't uh, seen it. Fuck. Yeah. It is one of the craziest movies. <laughs> one of the most obviously, they took this movie away from me and made it something else movies that you'll ever see in your life. I would... I would advise everyone to watch this, who, who either whether you're listening, it's I know Darby, you shake yeah. your head. It is a crazy movie about Nazis, uh, about Nazis, magic, uh, and sex. There's a lot of that in this. Like Tangerine Dream also in this movie as well. Yep. It is a crazy fucking movie. It's called The Keep. You wouldn't even think Michael Mann created it because there's none of his style present. And I know we just talked about his style. None of that is present in this movie. It's all like there were scenes that just kind of jump from beat to beat. The sound is terrible. Like you can barely hear what people are saying in the movie. It is one of the most fascinating movies I've ever seen. And I, I again, I bought it. But um, so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna go to break right now. And when we get back, we're gonna we're gonna do a deep dive on all four movies, and we're gonna figure out which ones we're gonna keep in the in the uh, video store, and which ones we're going to let go of. Late fees. We'll be right back.
everybody. We are back on Late Fees. Michael Mann episode, Michael Main episode, coming to you straight on September 11th, 2020. We're 19 years ago today, yeah, I started the golf years. unit in gym class in seventh grade. <laughs> Everything changed, man. I, I just can't believe it. Uh, but we're, we're going we're gonna to go to 1981 first, and we're going to talk about Thief. It is, uh, it is his feature film debut, which, which is what I see a lot. But he did do films before this. Uh, I'm talking Michael Mann, of course. Uh, it is starring James Caan, uh, uh, Tuesday Weld, Willie Nelson's in the movie, Jim Belushi's in the movie. King. We got to talk, talk about the Willie Nelson thing because that was one of the, it was a part of the story that didn't quite connect to me. But one thing I can say about Thief, uh, it is very meticulous. I've never seen someone take so much care into how someone, like, like Eric said, like into how someone does something than I have in this movie, right down to the gadgets and instruments that uh, James Conn's character uses to break into safes and to break into places. The first 20 minutes are like, it feels like GTA. And that's the only thing I can compare it to. It felt like a, a mission from GTA. And I was like, yo, this is like the music, you know what I'm saying? Like, and then oh, I start the to music. realize, then I start to realize that Rockstar probably took this <laughs> directly from me because they're, you know, they're, you know, British guys over there. They probably watch a lot of Michael Mann movies. But to me, I, I, I thought that Thief, just from the beginning to end, was a very meticulous and, and you know, it, it was just a really, like, again, a workman's movie. Like, it's all about the work that goes into it. And I enjoyed it for that. But uh, what did you guys think? Uh, it's amazing for a debut, I think. Uh, I mean, to, to be... Uh, I mean, I don't think Khan was necessarily the easiest guy to work with. Uh, so to be like wrangling that as, you know, your first, not, not de- filmmaking debut, but feature, you know, studio, whatever debut. Um, I think the, uh, the I, I said this in, in my letterbox review, but I spent like the first act of the movie thinking that the fence that hired him is the guy, uh, is Grandpa Munster, uh, <laughs> which it wasn't him. It's, it's not him. Uh, it's like when I thought Chris Cooper was in um, was Bruce Wayne in Joker, and like I told oh a God. bunch of people that, <laughs> and I think it was I think it was Wes who he had to heard me say it to like fourteen people, and then he was like, "That's not it's not him." <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, I, I think the it's really well sequenced. Like the actual, you're waiting the whole movie for like these heist sequences, basically, and when they happen, it's like, "Oh God, I want this to be over," uh, because it's so intense. And meanwhile, like they're rocking all these amazing outfits, uh, has some incredible, uh, incredibly grisly on-screen deaths that look yes. like shocking. Yes. Uh, bring back squibs. Well, I mean, he, he sort of does it in Miami Vice too. Miami Vice for the time had some pretty hyper-violent uh, scene, like the, the scene in the trailer. And we'll, we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later, but there's some pretty hyper-violent stuff there, but the uh i mean dom eric what'd you guys think about about thief i know dom you loved it you told me it was i love thief amazing. yeah i mean i've uh I'd, I'd seen it a few times before and i rewatched it yes last night and the thing i love about the movie isn't even actually like the okay like people love heat right they love michael Mann movies for like how like masculine and like violent and intense they are but the things that make thief special are like not those moments it's like the long scene in the diner of him like telling his new love interest like what prison was like and him showing her his like pocket-sized vision board and and all this like very like intimate like sensitive stuff and he seems so vulnerable yeah and 
I feel like every other movie that tries to ape Michael Mann style or tries to ape like gritty film noir, crime fiction stuff, they always have dudes getting out of prison and like, it's just like rape jokes. It's just like, oh man, he was in jail. Now he only likes butt sex or whatever. Like that's like the deepest they go with character. Yeah. And like, here's James Conn's character telling you like, I went into jail when I was 20 and I got out when I was 30 and this is who I am now. This is why I am this way. And he's so straightforward and open and honest. And you're like, this is really raw. Like at this point in this movie, you know what I mean? Like by yeah. this point yeah. in another movie, you think they would be like, the cops would be on him or he'd be like, the heist would go bad. And like, no, it's just him trying to like convince this woman, this like barren woman to be his wife. He doesn't care if they have to adopt. It's just so like honest. And like then yeah. the rest of the stuff from that moment, you're like really invested because he's not just like a cool guy. He's like this whole mm. person with dimensions. And I think that's so special. It isn't, that's the thing people always point out about Heat is like that one, I mean, uh, Thief, that one scene. But like- It's, it's a great scene really good every time it's not like a thing where you see it and you get it and you move on like every time i see that scene i'm like it's like the first time it's just so good yeah uh couldn't say it better myself and it you know to piggyback off what you were saying just uh, and, and sort of the illusions we made to um soderbergh earlier it's like you, you know it's this very lean heist movie like pat was saying but like he let michael mann lets all these moments breathe it's not just like Here's this tough, this this tough, you know, street street guy who's just gonna, like, have a ten second phone conversation with somebody, and then the the heist is underway. It's like, you see the planning and the meticulous detail that goes into the planning, and then the prep, and then the heist is treated. The planning is treated just as exciting and actionable as the action, and uh, yeah, that's something man does unparalleled. And you know, it, of course, it reminds me of like. Ocean's 13, obviously the tone is different, but it's like guys planning something to the T and then doing the job very well. So I yeah. think that's where another Soderbergh connection is. But but yeah, the um, that cafe scene, it was my first time watching Thief. I had never seen it. And maybe I had, just, just didn't remember it. I was too young. But um, yeah, that cafe scene, it, you know, obviously it's hard not to think about De Niro and Pacino sitting across the table from each other in the coffee shop. But just like, the blue and like white lights in the background, the, like the orbs sort of just like drifting off into the distance. And yeah, like you were saying, Dom, it's just like this hyper vulnerability that you don't get in these sort of macho crime thrillers uh, that, yeah, that's why you can't emulate Michael Mann because you have to be deeply invested in the interiority of this guy who, and any other movie would just be like a, a heavy or like a thug, you know? Yeah, I mean, it kind of translates, I'm getting way ahead of ourselves here, but it kind of translates even to like the sex scenes in Miami Vice, which on, on their face kind of seem like almost ridiculous because yeah. like there's no one who would shoot sex scenes like this, but it kind of is basically the same type of thing you guys are saying about Khan's performance in Thief. And that's it's why it's like, oh, I couldn't, I wouldn't even try to shoot sex scenes like this. It's super, it's super intimate and like, all his movies, like, especially, I think we, it's, there's a through line from Thief to Heat or to Black Hat. It's like existential masculinity. It's like masculinity at a crisis. Or it's, and it's the like, uh, like, uh, you are undervaluing what you want me to contribute to something. Like, yeah. at whether you're doing the, the tech, uh, you know, a, a digital heist or a, a real one. Like, I'm the only fucking guy who can do this and you ask me to do it. And the first thing you try to do is dick me around. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, the, one of the hardest labor bars ever when he said, I still see my money in your pocket. 
That's yeah. yielded. Yes. That's yielded from my labor. I thought you'd come around. What the hell is this? What? Where is gratitude? Where is my end? You can't see day for night. I can see my money is still in your pocket, which is from the yield of my labor. What gratitude? You are making big profits from my work, my risk, my sweat. But that is okay. Because I elected it to make that deal. But now, the deal is over. I want my end, and I am out. Why don't you join a labor union? I am wearing it. <laughs> that the bad guy goes, why don't you join a labor union? He goes, I'm wearing it. Wearing mine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, so the general, I know, I, know, I know we got away from the plot there, but the general plot of this movie was based on a 1975 novel called The Home Invaders, Confessions of a Cat Burglar by Frank Hoimer, who was the pen name of a real-life jewel thief called John Seabold. Uh, and it basically kind of takes from that story into this one. It stars uh, Khan as Frank, who is a jewel thief who, as we already said, got out of prison and he's trying to get out of, out of the life of crime. Uh, one of his partners is fucked over by some like mafia mobster type. And then he gets wrapped up into a, a bigger heist that would yield him enough money to get out of the game, adopt a child, which they help him get, and essentially go off and live with his girlfriend and, and you know, Scott Free and have a new life. Uh, obviously complications arise <laughs> with that and, <laughs> and Frank gets in, uh, he gets in too deep with these guys and, uh, you know, it goes from there. I thought that, I mean, as simple as this plot was, we knew that this was not, you know, we know this isn't going to end well. He's not going to be able to cut, cut bait enough. But the moment when they actually do fuck him over and they say, we put all your money in investments. Like, wow. It's like, oh, no. I was like, oh, well, no. You know it's going to be bad when he finishes the heist and there's like a decent chunk of the movie left. Yeah. That's when you <laughs> like, oh, fuck. Quick, quick aside, the hardest I laughed. I, I don't know if I maybe tuned out or I was texting or something. I, they might have mentioned it before. But when he comes back after that, like, you know, they're running on the beach together and enjoying the fruits yeah. of labor. The, he, get, he gets back to the baddie's house and he goes, how'd you enjoy San Diego? I thought they were in Bermuda or something. <laughs> San Diego, like the least like paradisic place ever. I, what, I was, what I was laughing at was 400. Well, I mean, obviously like model for inflation, that's probably like $3 million back then, but 400 K, I was like, you about to bust over to heaven 400 K, just get that back. Just, just go get that shit. <laughs> Well, I like that that for James Conn's character, it's very much like Lee Marvin in Point Blank. It's not even so much the amount as much as it's like the principle of like, I fucking did this. We had an agreement. Yeah, like like they they establish him as that person so hard early on that when they fuck him over, your mind isn't like, oh, no, what's he going to do? It's like, oh, fuck, I know what he's going to do. He's going to like (laughs) risk life and limb to murder all of these people now. And there's just that's what he has to do. But, yeah, but just, they have him. They they have him by the ball so much too, and I thought that was a really great story point because they got him his child. They, it's, they, it's, they, it hurts. It hurts. And and when you know he figures out that you know not only will he not be able to break free, but he may or may not be able to come back from this when he does mm-hmm. enact his revenge because they end up killing the, the scene where they kill his boy. 
and he's behind the dam. I was like, the way that shot and, and the way he sweeps from the corner all the way out to where he's actually at the door is just fucking magnificent. That I, I was on the edge of my seat because I thought that, again, for such a simple plot line A to B, what they throw at you there is like, yo, this is a man that on every side, he's facing jail, uh, prison, he's facing death, he's facing losing his family, that he sets that up perfectly. And I was like, wow, like this, this really does resonate. And, and I think that it, it hits probably even harder today with what people have to go through because they're having to juggle a lot of shit. Like, yo, we looting out here, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like, we might, we, we got to face a lot of shit. So like, I thought it was dope, but I thought that the, the actual heist uh, was so fucking dope. Yeah. We, yeah. Like Christopher Nolan, we, we, we were talking about people that don't really uh, crib and steal from, steal from Michael Mann. That motherfucker Christopher Nolan stole oh, a lot. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched I watched Dark Knight and Heat on back to back nights about a year ago. I want to say, and it, I mean, it's obvious, but it's like it's really fucking crazy. <laughs> with this one, with this, yeah. There's, but to Dom's point, like the the one element you can't emulate if you're not that kind of filmmaker is Nolan's. You know, a sort of fetish is just like cold, calculated. Um, results like somebody doing something well, but it's there's a coldness to it. There's mm-hmm. no emotional resonance that my, like Michael Mann makes it like a synth. You you're invested in the emotionality of the scene and the sort of proficient emotionality. I yeah, feel it, like <laughs> I feel like Nolan watches a Michael Mann movie and likes the way it's framed, mm-hmm. likes the movement of it, like a lot of the technical side of things, the that, car uh, stuff, but the actual interior stuff. I don't think he can like really capture. And like I think this specific the the heist in, in Thief. And we'll talk about it probably more when we talk about like Manhunter. Like all of these pre-modern day movies that Michael Mann has made, he does like pre-digital stuff so well in terms of like all the nitty-gritty tools that have to get used to break into a safe. Oh and yeah. It's, it's so fun to watch that type of shit, that actual like analog stuff, versus nowadays if someone makes a heist movie, like the planning is just a shot of a guy on a laptop. I'm always texting Justin phones ruined movies they've ruined them and he's like, what are you talking about it's 4 30 in the morning you know it's crazy you know it's crazy Dom you, you, you say like people like on the laptops you know what movies actually do heist really well and the explanation and how they get things done the Fast and Furious movies yeah. do heist very well. Yeah. I mean, there, there still is that laptop component, but you see But there's how still they mechanics to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I still think the vault, the the, the, the swinging vault thing, I, I can't remember which one. Is it Fast Five or Fast I think six? it's Fast Five where they, like, hook into the cars or drive yeah. with the vault. Yeah. <laughs> yes. One of the most yes. exhilarating. The shit ever. Yeah. <laughs> scenes ever but it, 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 you see the setup and why and why and how they had to do that and how they improvised and, and i think with thief and that like we all owe a major debt to this movie you know as far as how, how they handled that but as far as the comeuppance that scene is fucking scary and also very <laughs> realistic and yeah. also also grand theft auto okay yeah. so frank walks in murders Everyone. <laughs> when he when he kills Grandpa Monster, I was fist pumping. <laughs> Same. Yeah, like <laughs> something about something about Michael Mann that I think is like a weird thing to point out about how good he is is like I read this interview with uh, the guy that wrote Collateral, Stuart Beatty, I think, like years ago in a magazine, and he was saying anyone can write a good villain. Like writing good villains is like the easiest thing in screenwriting. He's like having a satisfying way to kill that villain is the hard part because like you know you'll have a really cool villain and then like they'll get hit by a car or whatever. And I feel like every time someone that you hate dies in a Michael Mann movie, it's really good. 
Like yeah, every yes. like when the, when this when when James Conn shot that guy, I like ran it back. I was a VLC player like because <laughs> like, yeah. he's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone you know, dies like, is like slow motion. I love when people when die in old movies die, and like good. it doesn't look exi- like it's not really how somebody would die. Like you'll no. they'll get shot through the head and they'll be like, <laughs> but it's so great. Uh, it's, so so oh. there is there is one part of that that I was like. I, I was like, Negro, please. He gets shot by a shotgun and the bulletproof vest. Well, it's revealed later that he had a bulletproof vest on. Cause I was like, okay, I get it. I would have been fine if he had expired there. Yeah. But he gets up and still kills the guy with the, with the, uh, with the shotgun. And then he pulls out the vest and says, uh, then like, the music is still going. I'm just like, bro, at that range, the shotgun would have tore his ass apart. There's no fucking way he, he survived. The, this. He had the, the the Back to the Future three bulletproof vest. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I did love you know the video gameness of it, which is I mean I know it's probably sacrilege to say about that, but it it really is. It's really how gunfights yeah. and like that. It's really how they go in video games. But I also love that it ended on Frank walking away, walking out of the life. He, he is he's completely uh, disconnected from it. But uh, the Will you guys keep this in the in the video store? I definitely will. One of my favorite movies of the year that came out 30 years ago. Yeah, I actually t- completely agree. On my list of movies I have seen for the first time this year, it's uh, incredibly high. Uh, and even like even though I didn't like it as much as some other movies, I think it's one of the most memorable movies I've seen in a long time. Yeah, and I, I agree. You 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 sort of there's a running you know pattern here where you sort of have to keep this. This is sort of the blueprint for what's to come on a 30 year incredible track record of tro- like even just like motifs that he'll re revisit down to uh, a protagonist, like turning a corner and pointing a gun right at the camera. Like that, that frame where he mm-hmm. turns into the bedroom and he's looking dead down the barrel. And then even the way he shoots people like two in the chest, one in the head, Michael Mann always does that, especially in collateral. Uh, <laughs> yeah. King shit. Keeping it. Uh, Dom, I, oh, I, definitely I do I even have that? Okay, yeah. <laughs> complete, a, com- a complete perfect score. It's very rare that happens on late fees. I think last time it happened was, uh, <laughs> was it Child's Play? No, it wasn't Child's Play. Child's Play, I don't know if you heard that episode, Dom, the best reviewed horror series on this show. <laughs> I actually missed that one, but Child's Play is pretty raw. So. <laughs> the, it has the highest number of good movies in a horror franchise. Uh, next up, 1986, Manhunter. Dom, you obviously, this movie is also near and dear to your heart. You just did an episode uh, of the Armchair (laughs) Auteur, all of the different uh, adaptations of this particular story. Obviously, we're talking about Red Dragon. Uh, The Thomas Harris novel, of course, that that, uh, is about, you know, Will Graham uh, trying to find the the uh the red dragon the tooth fairy if you will mm. um obviously i've been on a big hannibal kick it came back to netflix uh, about a month and a half ago me and my fiance binge watched the show uh in that time i with hannibal the show i had got up to season two and i'd stopped so this is my first time experiencing season three i knew about all of the things going on thought it was incredible didn't see manhunter at all but went back to watch it and it just so happened we we're gonna you do saw it at the fabled drive-in Saw it at the drive-in last week, so I got that. Check that one off the list. 
Uh, there's not much. I, I think we don't have to spend as much time on Manhunter because we did a Hannibal episode. Yeah. So I think this will be mostly <laughs> this will be mostly us uh, kind of talking about how we felt about Manhunter as a movie, uh, technically, and how it actually ad- uh, adapted Red Dragon, which we saw the Brett Ratner version, and we also saw the uh, the TV version, and how those stacked up. And uh, Pat, I mean, how do you feel about it? I think the craziest thing about, I said this on the Hannibal episode, I think, but I think the craziest thing about it, uh, and a man, it was another movie I saw for the first time this year, maybe the best title card of a movie I've seen this year when it does the green. Uh, it It's just so awesome. Uh, I purchased the Scream Factory uh, Blu-ray of Manhunter yesterday. I had to do it on oh, wow. eBay because it went out of print a month ago. Uh, so I had to pay, uh, but I've paid 54 shipped. I bought it digital. <laughs> Holla at me. Hey, I have, I uh, listen, I need the box art. I need the box <laughs> art, baby. And now the shelf, you know, I am. Um, I think it's the, the Hannibal universe has the hot, like we just kind of said this about child's play, but it has the, like, it's all good other than Hannibal itself, the movie Hannibal. Uh, but all the, all three or four, or however many Hannibals there are, are, I, you know, take your pick of your favorite. They're all good. Uh, we didn't like Hannibal Rising. We did not like Hannibal Okay, Rising. sorry. Yes, I forgot about that one. Uh, doesn't count. Uh, no, it counts. Okay, it counts. Okay, so there's a bad. There's a very bad one in there. Not all the Hannibals are good. But the one not who isn't Hannibals. good knows karate. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the movie's amazing. I think, the, uh, I think a lot of the same stuff we see with Frank in Thief translates to... Uh, Graham and Manhunter, you know, in the, the through line that we've been talking about. And uh, I, I think the, for a scene that's happened many times, like it's almost like the uh, the Wayne parents dying in the alley of the uh, Manhunter franchise, but uh, the tiger scene <laughs> in Manhunter yeah. is just unbelievable. I was like sitting in my living room, like with the sound hits, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in there with the tiger. This is insane. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I mean, it's it, uh, probably among, I, I'm like, it's probably my second favorite. Uh, it's one of his best movies. Yeah. Uh, Eric, what did you feel about uh, Manhunter? Uh, I didn't get a chance to watch it with fresh eyes, like right before this. I probably watched it at the end of last year. I think Pat or Wes or somebody was watching it around that time too. And, uh, that's pretty fresh yeah still relatively fresh it's within the last you know within the year um same with heat um but it, it's hard i i enjoyed it it didn't give me the same this might be contradictory i, I don't know it, it's the movie that feels less like a least like a michael mann movie mm-hmm. um and that's not necessarily a bad thing and i, I understand maybe what's why because it is sort of this Larger than life pre-existing property because this came how many years after Silence of the Lambs? No, it's before. It came before. It was before. It was before. Mm-hmm. See, okay, I'm this an idiot. The first uh, one. Um, okay, but it still it still is a pre-existing property that like he you know he had Miami Vice, but I don't. I mean, he didn't do a ton of that. It, it, something about it just felt yeah like if one of those things that got away from him. Maybe it was the money guys or something that stepped in. It just didn't. It's still great and, and extremely watchable and be withable. And Brian Cox is the god, and uh, you know it's hard for me to appreciate any Hannibal-esque material as I'm watching Hannibal the TV show, which I think is just the greatest shit ever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> last last great network show. Truly, it's incredible that that shit was even on NBC. Um, but yeah, it's it's one that 
I, it just didn't really cling with me. It didn't stick to the ribs, really. This That's understandable. The problem is, like, Red Dragon as a story is really, like, very about, like, duality. It's very much, like, about Will and then also, like, the killer. Like, that kind of, like, you know, face-off, heat, sort of two-hander thing. And it's really clear, I think, in Manhunter that Michael Mann's a lot more interested in Will than he is the Tooth Fairy. Absolutely. So, like, mm -hmm. when you get to the Tooth Fairy, it's really Tom Noonan doing a lot of the heavy lifting. You know what I mean? So I feel like the second half of Manhunter is not quite as strong as the first half. And, like, the first half of him showing all the, like, procedural stuff is a lot more fun. That's, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't really like the Tooth Fairy in this one. And, and, I, and I told uh, – I think I told Pat this, too. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I felt he was just too weird. So there was, he was yeah. so weird that there was no nuance whatsoever. It was just, here's the spooky villain. And it, it was like, they just threw him out there. And like, obviously there were changes made. I think maybe like, and, and Dom, you touched on this in, in, your, in your video about it. And I absolutely agree. Like there were parts in this that they did a lot, a little bit better than Brett Ratner did, which is a little bit closer to the book, but it had those like Hannibal asides that they added to it. And then the TV show was really all about Will and Hannibal more so than mm -hmm. the Tooth Fairy, but it had the best Tooth Fairy. So it's like- yeah, there's there so much room to do it. I also think yeah. straight up, like Michael Mann always seems to identify with certain kinds of archetypes throughout his movies. And I don't think he's ever identified with like serial killers. So like, I don't think he had like a way, like, I don't know how he was gonna like show the interiority of like the serial killer's work and like how yeah. you know, important it was or whatever. I think that's just the issue is like, He's never returned to making any kind of serial killer shit. He, he must have realized, like, this... I, I can't do it. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, like, even though, like, like Ratner is obviously a far inferior filmmaker... Uh, and, and Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, and... But because the actual source material itself is a little bit trashy and pulpy, like, Silence of the Lambs, like, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies, like, literally one of my favorite movies ever... But it's like trashy and problematic and like very good pulpy and like gritty and not in a way that's like, oh, it's a gritty movie. Like it's like actually gritty. Uh, and Ratner kind of does the trashy elements of the story and makes it pulpier and like more consumable in ways that like the higher class Manhunter, which I like a lot, love, does not do. I will I the show is so good because like the show yeah. can go in all these really crazy directions because like it's not like the source material is like a, like a sacred thing. You can mm -hmm. do whatever the fuck you want to these weird ass yeah. books. You know? yeah. I, I will say what I do appreciate compare, Manhunter compared to Silence of the Lambs, which I can't believe I got the chronology wrong. Uh, this is far less pro-cop. Uh, <laughs> this is pro-William Peterson, the, the actor, like pro, uh, you know, uh, pro-Will Graham, excuse me, not the actor. Um, like he, he, again, just a guy who's very good at what he does and it could be any profession. He's not like really fetishizing the law and order aspect of like, uh, what's her name? Uh, Clarice. Jody Clarice. Foster. Uh, I, I, would, I would argue that all of the Thomas Harris or Hannibal adaptations are very anti-cop. I mean, anti they, at least like anti-bureaucracy, like. Uh, yeah, like they're, they're, they, they constantly break rules. They constantly are, are hamstring by them, but still break them. They constantly fuck up. Yeah. I think, I think uh, uh, Jack, I don't know how Jack isn't fired for some of the shit that, that, that yeah. they, they fuck up in these yeah, and, movies. And they, they're, all like, they're all really gross to Clarice in Silence of the yeah. Lambs. Like one of the craziest things about the movie is how like literally every guy she interacts with, even the good ones are like real gross. Yeah, I'm like teary-eyed and shit. And, and, then, and then they're also pushing Will to the point of insanity. 
and, and yeah. this is a, this is a consistent theme that these people are now I'm gonna say they're no different than serial killers. They're not, but they're just as indulgent as as the ones that we're seeing on screen. And and they're they they're all about being right. And that's yeah, hey, essentially what Hannibal is trying to be too. Hey, guy with PTSD and like mental degradation, please go scare <laughs> the dead bodies for me, please. I sir. love I love how PTSD is a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> I I also uh, I I also. Like it's very it's really interesting to see uh, the De Laurentiis uh, Entertainment Group make this and, and Dino and, all, and that whole crew there. It's like they like they were like powerhouses back in the day, and and it's really interesting to see a Hannibal movie through that lens of, of that sleaziness. Like because a lot of the shit in this movie, admittedly, has not aged well. Like the design of the houses. Uh, the the Tooth Fairy's little ass apartment that looks fucking weird and cheap. Uh, I love the, when people have <laughs> tiny apartments and stuff. Like, how, uh, he, how is he killing so anyone? How the fuck was he killing anyone in that apartment? Well, it's it, it's like uh, when they finally. I was watching. I have to get back on the train, but I was watching the X Files like all at the first round of the first lap of quarantine before I knew that's what it was. <laughs> what uh, lap are we at now? I'd say three or four. Okay, um, and. Uh, when they finally show where the cigarette smoking man lives, he lives in like a shithole that has like one chair and no lights. It's like, you're literally like the top conspiracy executive on the planet. Why do you, you live in a hovel? But, but, but my thing also with, with Manhunter is how the fuck did you see, uh, how the fuck did you see the Tooth Fairy, uh, what's his name, Dollar Hyde, and you not know that he was killing somebody? He was <laughs> way too weird for this movie. When he was sitting in the, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the little edit bay or whatever it was with Reba, and he's like talking to her, and the dude looks at him, like he comes in and just like, Reba, he can take you home. I'm just like, no, motherfucker. Like, he looks crazy. You're not blind. She is. Yeah, I think I think, it, I think what, Dom, what Dom was saying earlier is really true is like Noonan really is doing the heavy lifting where man is like so concerned with Will that he's like, okay, I, I'm just going to go for it, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's probably just I, you do you. Yeah, you, I like you Noonan a lot. You know more than I do, yeah. He's, he's but, uh, and even like, uh, I never, Ray Fines. Uh, is, is I think he's great. Uh, yeah, he's pretty Dragon. good. Not gonna lie. Yeah. Uh, one more thing before we get off uh, on this movie. Um, I, I just we gotta talk about the Hannibal here because because I mean we gotta talk about Brian Cox. I, yeah. I he was no different to me than a gamer gator or or a gaming YouTuber dog. Like he, I was like he. I mean he's in the movie for what four minutes at, at best. Yeah, it's very short. Yeah, like but but I thought that it was really interesting, and I was telling my fiance like look at the stark difference between how much he's in this and how the fuck, how much he's in the damn TV show. It's like, they're, 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 he was never supposed to be forefront. And it was interesting to see how the TV show kind of structured their story to make it make sense that he would be around for so damn long. I mean, even in Silence of the Lambs, he's not on screen that much. Like, obviously, Hannibal it's a different performance. being a but... big character, we basically owe to Anthony Hopkins. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. if Anthony Hopkins, because even in Silence of the Lambs, he's only in that movie for like, 15 minutes or something crazy like that. It's yeah. like the, the least amount of screen time to best actor Oscar ratio ever. And I think because he made it such a cultural force, any Hannibal media after that also reckons with Hannibal as a big character. I like Brian Cox's little, like, he's just like an asshole. He's just like a weird murdering asshole. Yeah, kind of like yeah. cool. incel vibes popping. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's a good point that Hannibal was always meant to be a symbol of evil and like sort of, yeah, not foregrounded in the actual evil. He represents like the umbrella of which all evil exists underneath. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's just also just a testament 
to Anthony Hopkins, but also Brian Cox, who can come in for five minutes and just wipe the floor. And uh, a testament ultimately to uh, Mads. I mean, it, it, Mads I, should not, I should not be thrilled to be looking at your human souffle Rolodex, but I, let's, <laughs> let's, let's dive in. Let's do it. Uh, please, please watch Hannibal. Please watch Hannibal on Netflix if they take it away. Actually, please watch it more and get Netflix to give them the fucking bag. To bring yeah. Back. Give, give Fuller the, the movie. We want, we want, Please. we want to do, we want him to do the actual, so we got the Fuller silence of the lambs. Um, I seen it a couple times. I think as a rite of passage in a black family, you had to go see it in the theaters, which we did. You had to see it when it came out on DVD, which we did. And you had to watch it again when it came to HBO, which we did. <laughs> I'm over this movie. I'm sorry. I did not watch it again. I've seen it enough. Um, I feel the same way that I did even as a kid, seeing it a thousand times. I thought Will Smith was great. I thought the actual movie itself didn't do enough to to live up to the like mythologizing Muhammad Ali. I thought it was just kind of like, I, I think when you when you live in like a, a household that we're always taught about Muhammad Ali, this story is root is root and routine routine to me at that point. I, I felt as though like all the beats it hit them correctly, but to me it became like you know. I hate to even compare it to this, but it's like a bunch of these like slave movies that come out. I was like, I hear that enough. Like I, like I, it, like like Ali's backstory to me is like Batman's backstory. I don't need to see the crime alley anymore. <laughs> I, I know what's about to happen. I know what's up. I know who he was. So, um, I've I've just always had a weird relationship with the movie. I don't know if anyone else felt that way, but I, I just felt like I was like, it's it's okay. It's it's a little too too fucking long. Yeah. Well, here's minutes. I mean, one of the reasons it has the reputation I have, it has, and I've actually never even seen the whole thing, or at least not all in one sitting. But I think the reason, like what you're talking about is like, it, it feels like all these slave movies that keep coming out is because it isn't for black people. It's for white people. And that's why they were like, Oh, Ali, like it's going to be one of his most nominated uh, movies at the Academy Awards. Like it's Will Smith's like first truly serious role uh because he was so mad he didn't uh, accept the matrix role uh, you feel like that was understand. a get back do you feel like do you feel like that was a get back like oh shit jade is in the matrix now i gotta get back i gotta i gotta do something big and prestige now yeah i mean it's it's so weird because he did this big like a truly a prestige movie but he didn't keep making prestige movies after that like <laughs> at all because it flopped yeah, well, yeah. i don't think it's just because it flopped though i think a part of it is like Will is like pretty good in this movie. And I, I don't know who else you could have gotten to play Muhammad Ali who would have that level of presence for the movie to like work. But I think this movie also highlights that like as talented as Will is, he does have a very limited range because even in like the best scenes in this movie, there are little moments where you forget you're watching Muhammad Ali and you feel like you're watching Will Smith impersonate Muhammad Ali. <laughs> and in those moments, it takes you clean out of the movie and you're just like, it's, I'm just watching The Fresh Prince. You know, like, <laughs> it's not like Jamie Foxx. Which is coming Foxx back? Is, yeah, it's like the, the dark Fresh Prince. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Nolan Fresh Prince. <laughs> but I, I feel like genuinely, like someone like Jamie Foxx is good for biopics because he's such, such a skilled impressionist and such a good mimic that like he really can lose himself in whatever he's pretending to be. And he's unreal as the corner man in this movie. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's the best thing in this movie. Um, but Will Smith, like even if it's, even when he's given a good performance, he's never not Will Smith. And mm -hmm. that's just what happens when you become a real movie star. You know what I mean? Like there's just a limit to what, like Tom Cruise couldn't play like a president in a movie or something like one of our real presidents because you'd be like that's president tom cruise like that's yeah <laughs> I, I i even often find myself saying the same same things about like pacino or de niro's it's like at this point this person is a performer more than they are an actor 
and yeah. that's fine. They're the biggest movie stars in the world. They're not. They're not the literal best actors. They're performers. And I think wow. these people learned. They, with they the just started like compact. I'm never gonna do this. Trash behind my apartment. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. You, can you all hear that? It's really loud. I can't no, hear anything. I, I can't hear. It. I can't. All right. Cool. Uh, yeah, I think it's a confluence of things because this really was his first, Will Smith's first auteur project. Like he worked with Tony Scott on Enemy of the State, but like that was still sort of through the lens of like a blockbuster espionage thriller, sort of already in Will Smith's wheelhouse. But again, we've talked about Tom Cruise a bunch on this pod. And I think that's what separates them as movie stars is like, you know, Tom is a weirdo, but he like worked with PTA. He worked with Scorsese. He worked with Spielberg. He worked with, you know, outside of this sort of mainstream studio system, not to say that Spielberg isn't it, it isn't that, but he took more risk artistically. So I think this was his first risk. So yeah, it might be an oversimplification to say because it flopped, he didn't run back to it. But I, I think it, 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 it didn't hurt or it didn't help. Um, Cause he went right back into, you know, Hitch and Men in Black 2, Men in Black 2, like back to Sonnefeld land. But you know, for the movie's merits itself, like I, I will argue that the opening 10 minutes of that movie is some of, it might be the, my favorite film intro ever. Uh, on an uninterrupted Sam Cooke song, you meet Malcolm X, you meet, you know, Jim Crow policing, you meet his distrust of like white Jesus, uh, what his father was doing, painting that white <laughs> Jesus mural. Um, again, and, and just a dialogueless man at work training in the gym having flash you know uh, premonitions of of, of a, a fight that he's not a part of um and just hitting this hitting this the um the heavy bag of speed bag and then and then yeah it, it it basically starts where a sports biopic would usually end and i think that's where michael mann ex- exceeds because it is like the things that justin rightfully pointed out we do revisit the well that we probably don't need to with Ali, but if it is something that you aren't familiar with him, and it, it is, again, this larger-than-life macho figure, you know, exudes masculinity and confidence, and you're kind of cutting into the interiority of, like, how did he become this person that we already know so well outside of the ring? And yeah, I, I, and I, it really worked for me. You know what was I thought was a better movie than this? We lost you for just a uh, second. The hurricane. The, the, I think Denzel was in it, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you guys see that Wilson, one? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while, but it's great. I thought that was better because, I mean, even when you get past that, like, 15, first 15 minutes, which is great, depending on what version of this fucking movie you're watching, because there's a 165-minute version out there, you've got at least another two, three hours left to go there. And, and I think that, again, it feels like a, a revolving cast of characters where it's like, hey, there goes Malcolm X. Hey. There goes this person. Remember him? Hey, there goes fucking Don King. Hey, there go, like there's so many people that show up for for little like like oh Lavar Burton is my is, is MLK and everyone's like oh shit everything getting all the it was like it was it, it it was it almost seemed like it was like we gotta we gotta plug in all these people but it's like okay it shows the 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 gravity of what you know who Ali touched and who he was able to meet but it also felt like it was like yo we could cut this down like Spike Lee did. Malcolm X, it was a very long movie, but it still had that, that character in it. I felt like my, like Ali was just, even, even I was younger in the movie, this shit was boring as hell. <laughs> I was I, like, I, I, <laughs> I actually rewatched Ali. So I had not, I'd never seen Ali until like two years ago. I just, mm-hmm. something slipped through or whatever. I never watched it. And when I first saw it, I was really impressed by it because I was in the middle of doing a big Michael Mann watch. 
So I liked it for the fact that it's like, it's where he starts experimenting with digital video. Um, like the opening sequence is incredible. There's all these little things about the movie that I liked. But then when I rewatched it at the start of quarantine, I rewatched Malcolm X and then watched this. I don't know how I did those back to back, but like uh, by the time I got through to this, I kept thinking like, I feel like so many biopics, if you're making a big biopic, let's say you're like a white filmmaker, you're making a Muhammad Ali movie. There's stuff you feel like you probably have to keep in because people will be mad if you leave it out. Yeah. And I think what would be much better is if someone else had made a big Muhammad Ali movie and then later Michael Mann got to make like a smaller one, like mm-hmm. one that's like under two hours, cuts out a lot of the big stuff and just is like the opening of the movie and then some of the more intimate moments in between the big historical things because that stuff to me is what hits. Like it was so cool watching like Denzel have to be Malcolm X for like the entirety of his life from like Detroit Red onward. <laughs> yeah. And then getting to see Mel- uh, Mario Van Peebles do it at this very unique little moment at the end of Malcolm X's life. And it was such mm. a more tender performance and stuff. But I just remember thinking like, man, if you chop out a lot of this stuff, the little stuff inside the movie is still really powerful. But like, you do have to sit through like two and a half hours like, and stuff to get to it. It should have been like little short stories, like little short vignettes, like skipping around instead of just going, taking us all throughout that. I, I just That's felt like the this style of biopic I like. Yeah, like, like the this, little bite size. Yeah. Yeah, like this should have been man peeling back and being able to peel back instead he just kind of it kind of he kind of lost the plot a little bit and, and i think the oh, this might be sacrilegious to say this is probably like one of my less least favorite movies of his and probably like one of the movies i just felt like i was it was just it was just okay so I, I don't think you're alone in that uh, i i i feel like the things that worked for me were what you guys are saying the more like the filmic properties of it not the actual structure and and the, the story beats like when he gets to Africa and, and he's walking through the village, like you said, when he's ex- the, the early experimentations with what he's doing with digital here, just like the way the sky, this looks like crunched, but bigger than it, it, he gets this strikes this duality of like, I think Michael Mann is like a reputation of like, you have to shoot film. It doesn't look good if you don't <laughs> shoot film. Like he makes digital look like an expressionist painting and like so much, so rich and so detail, so detailed that, uh, yeah, it's it's hard for me to hate on anything he really does. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to, I mean, we'll talk about it more, I guess, in Miami Vice. But like this specific era of digital shooting is so unique because it's like, I think Michael Mann was the only person at the time who understood that's like there is a relationship between how we watch movies and the format we watch them in. Yeah, and he knew what digital meant on like a psychological level and used it in a way that preyed upon that in a good way. Like you know what I mean? He really used video like. I'm not going to try to hide that I'm shooting on video. I'm going to let this be video, let you feel the differences between video and film. Mm-hmm. And like no one else was doing that. Everyone else was either doing like that, like Thomas Vinterberg, like fucking dogma style thing with video, or they were trying to pass it off as film. And like, he has, it's, it's very painterly. You know what I mean? The way yeah. he uses video is so unique. It's, yeah. it's always good when like an aging director accepts uh, new technologies, like new and changing technologies and stuff. And my, one of my favorite things ever is Friedkin in his Marin interview bitching about how much better Blu-ray is than anything else and how it's so much easier to shoot on digital. And if you want to shoot on film, you're a psychopath. And like, you're 75. This is awesome. Yeah. Not just embracing it, but like running, actively running to it and being like, no, this is where we need to be. Yeah. Well, that's how you make Killer Joe at 75. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so are we keeping Ali? I'll keep it just for the historical aspect, but it's one of those movies I just don't in my life have the need to ever watch again. It's 157 <laughs> minutes. It just doesn't doesn't need to be there. But I'll keep it for 
Will Smith and, you know, just the historical aspect of it. I'll, I'll keep it for, you know, Will Smith's first Oscar. It truly it does. Like the, the, does he have a second? Uh, Pursuit of Happiness. Really? Yeah. He, has a, he, has, yeah. he won an Oscar for Pursuit oh, of no, Happiness? No, no, no. Two, two noms. Okay, two noms. okay. Two noms. Yeah. Uh, God, like the last time we got to see a God-level John Voight performance before he became uh, <laughs> John Voight. <laughs> He's great as Howard Cosell's. And, and, and again, just to reiterate what Dom said, like I, I get the, 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 the runtime is bloated, as Pat calls it, the three-hour movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, that sounded that ended up coming out so much more disparaging than I meant it. I just all I was trying to say is you don't have to watch it this morning. I know, it was so, <laughs> I'm glad I did. It gave me a little rousing spirit because the, the, the like Dom said, the little parts that do work, the the quieter in between moments are truly transcendent, and they are sort of drowned out by a sort of you know um, bloated um, uh, runtime and, and just yeah trying to cram too much into a test. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm still keeping it. Yeah, keeping it. Yep. Back to to where we started. Back to Michael Mann's wheelhouse, the show that he helped create. Uh, Miami Vice, 2006. Uh, another motherfucking long ass movie, <laughs> of course. But uh, yes, uh, starring Jamie Foxx, who uh, you know Michael Mann, Jamie Foxx homeboys and Colin Farrell. So, you know, I might just walk away and just let Eric and Dom take over this segment of the show. Uh, Miami Vice, uh, it is, it's, I mean, obviously it's about Crockett and Tubbs, uh, basically following their, their exploits in Miami. This is one movie that I felt like was like a collection of like little short stories that kind of connected in a way. It felt like all moments of a TV show. It, it, it really did feel like a, a, a cop procedural at, at times when I, when mm-hmm. I watched it. And I remember when I saw this in the movie theater in 2006, I was in college, I was with a sophomore at that time. And I was like, man, uh, Colin Farrell definitely left Tubbs and went on extended PTO for like a couple of days to go hang out and bang a chick while, <laughs> while Tubbs had no clue where the fuck he was. Dude, they, they don't explain that. <laughs> they don't explain that in the movie at all. Look, I just wanna say Colin Farrell was like 27 here. He looks 48. <laughs> he, he looks exactly like Ray Valcoro. Like, yeah, yeah, he is in Ray mode, and his, his hair—good God, perfect hair. Got my—I I grew my mustache out just for this. Um, <laughs> no, but like, it's insane to me that that is a twenty-something-year-old man, and like Jamie had just turned forty, uh, or like about to turn forty. Just, which just won the Oscar for Ray, just, I think, too. Just won the Oscar. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't that know. It is a shocking know. fact. Yeah, it's unsettling. I remember in 2006, I didn't know what to make of this movie. I was like, this is boring. Like I had all the, the, the usual complaints about this movie. It, Cause it is again, a, that, that through line of DNA of, of professional men longing for connection. And, and I think the digital, the digital aspect here plays in, in a very meta level too. It's like these men trying to find longing outside of this one particular thing they're good at in this digital world that has sort of balkanized us and isolated us. And uh, like, there's, there's at least 20 shots of men like talking to someone else and then like looking off and the camera follows them and it, it looks off into the distance while they're speaking to somebody else. Yeah, that's why the first time, the, this is the only time, I finally finished this movie today. I was telling Dom before we started recording, this was the first and only movie I walked out of in a theater. Uh, the first, <laughs> first rated R movie I could buy a ticket to when I turned 17 and I did. One of the guys I went with hates every movie and he hated it and wanted to leave. And the other guy I went with was 16 and snuck in and was looking over his shoulder the whole time. 
So I left the movie around one of the moments Eric is describing when I was like, I thought this was going to be like bad boys. <laughs> and we fucking left. And I, I felt, I felt bad about it ever since knowing now, like, Oh, I didn't understand what was happening. Uh, would you say, would you say this movie has like a cult, a cult following now? Yeah. There's in terms of people like a, I know. Yes. <laughs> there's entirely like this whole class of young film critic who this movie is what made them movie people basically. Like when it came out, I was really excited about it because I did think it was going to be like bad boys. I just thought it was going to be like the smart version of bad boys or whatever. Yeah. Which I, I think they it, sold it like that. That's how they sold it. And probably how they were able to get like a $150 million budget for it. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I got like the DVD when it came out. And for some reason, if you went to like a video store, you could only get the director's cut. And I watched that and I hated it. And I, I just, it really like hurt and disappointed me. And then maybe like four years later, a coworker of mine who's a big Michael Mann fan brought up how perfect Miami Vice is. And I was like, oh, this guy's like stupid. Uh, and, and he was like, well, did you watch the theatrical cut? And I was like, I mean, how, who cares? How is it different? So I did go watch the theatrical cut. And it, for me, it was completely different. Like, you know, the director's cut opens up with them on the boats and stuff. And it's like this whole weird, like more action oriented vibe. But the theatrical just cuts with them in the club and like numb yep. encore plays. Jay-Z. And I was Park. just like, boom. Even though that song choice is like weird, it's, it's perfect. And like, it, it sets the movie's tone so well. Mm -hmm. These guys are deep undercover. And then like the stuff with John Hawks, like the first 10 minutes of my, of my advice for me are like, fucking per absolutely perfect we love john hawks folks oh he's the best yeah and and like I, I think what makes the movie work so well is like it is essentially the plot of an episode of miami vice right like it is like you know uh crockett falls for a girl and gets too deep and blah 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 like miami vice would do that every fucking week he would just every week <laughs> he would disappear with a girl or whatever and, and forget about the case but for the movie there's all this time and space to explore like these guys literally get thrown into like an fbi raid job uh, because of like the Aryan Brotherhood and all this stuff. Yeah. And then within 20 minutes, he's like drinking mojitos in Cuba with Gong Lee. And he's like, never mind, we're going to stay undercover for years on this. Like, it's just, <laughs> and it's like you can't do that. That's not and an he, option. He, he comes back and Tubbs is like, eh. like he does this all the time. I'm does, like, yeah, this like, this is, is completely normal. <laughs> and to me, the two best moments in the movie about, about like Crockett's arc is he's in Cuba with Gong Lee and he's like renegotiating the partnership for this thing they just set up a day ago talking about like long-term stuff. And in the moment you're like, is this part of the foreplay for him? Or is he so deep that he thinks this matters? Like you actually feel lost in the plot the way they are. Yeah. And then the counterweight to that moment is later in the movie before the final shootout when Jamie Foxx is like, it's that time again. Badges are going to come out. Guns are going to come out. Like literally, hey, we do this every few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> are you good? Are you going to be okay this time when yeah. we have to go back to being cops? And Crockett's like, nah. I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in it for real. And you just know, he <laughs> says that every few weeks. Eric's smiling so big right now. <laughs> he loves it. It's, it's, it's like, it's, 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 it's compelling, right? Like it's an interesting way to do a cop story. Like, especially these cops are less uh, like law enforcement, more just like long-term actors. It's like making a movie. Every, you get yeah. into your character, you get into it and then you jump out of it. And I don't know, I, I, I feel like, like Crockett stuff in the movie is nearly laughable by the end because like yes by the time he is like ready to send Gong Li off to get away from everything 
she's actually like heart like she just fucked her entire life up for this dude she just met yeah. and he's just like oh, can't follow you sorry he said he, i think he said i think he said we're out of time baby i think he said yeah we're out of time i think our time's run out or something like and, that and just like, like you know, four minutes of screen time ago you were ready to run away with this woman and he's like yeah but not really like this is what i do <laughs> this is me it's almost uh, uh it's almost james con-esque in thief when he has to set he sends his wife packing it's um i think that's a really good observation the characters feel as lost in the plot as we do. And I think that's why the stakes work and feel real. Um, and I'm not trying to say everything, all the writing is perfect. Some of the dialogue is hilarious. Like his, like, is his, his, his like main pickup line to Gong Li is, they don't like my passport. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like only Colin Farrell could have done this role too. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like there's a, there's a level of like, Michael Mann at this point in his career writes dialogue that's like poetry, but it's poetry from like a guy who's like, you know, like getting his GED in his forties and like is taking a poetry <laughs> class. Like there's this weird, it's kind of like, like, like terse and stuff. So I don't know who else could have said this stuff and made it sound like real. Like when he pulls the fucking grenade on John Ortiz's character oh, yeah. and they're just talking back and forth in these weird riddles. Yeah. Like it's so not realistic. The movie itself has like a very realistic vibe and he gets into the nitty gritty of police enforcement the way he does with the heist stuff and thief. But once Jamie Foxx and, uh, and Colin Farrell open their mouths, like nobody talks like that. Yeah, no, I, I, love, I love that scene because when he pulls out the grenade, then Jamie Foxx says something that's like, it's like something that Khan would say in thief and you'd be like, Oh fuck. Yeah. yeah. But it's Fox says like, we're not auditioning for you. You're auditioning for us. And there's like 70 guys with machine guns pointed at them. Like, you guys are, they would kill you in a second. And like, they, they, they both do that thing where they keep, it's like the, it's like undercover cop 101. Like, are you the cop? Like, yeah. Are you, don't are you don't say team? that. <laughs> like, why are you even putting that thought in their mind? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there is a, a beautiful bit of symmetry in that scene though, when he threatens to like make him like a Jackson Pollock. Mm -hmm. And later when they finally do shoot John Ortiz, his blood spatters onto the wall and it does look like a painting. So I yeah. was like, oh, nice. Weird role for Ortiz too, given like his later career. I, he's taking okay, a lot more toothless roles, yeah. You guys talk about a lot of great technical scenes. There has <laughs> to be a scene, the, the scene in the trailer park, I just want to talk about it. I feel as though uh, Elizabeth Rodriguez's character forgot her lines. <laughs> because when Here's what's she's, gonna happen. They say, Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, <laughs> and she skips, did she forget her lines and he kept it? I, I think it, there, there is a little bit of improvisation there, but also I, I think it speaks to the, the, the duality of what both of you are saying. Like there is a, the way with which the characters speak is extremely <laughs> human and people stutter and skip over words and, and freeze but the words they say are so Shakespearean, like no human being talks like that. <laughs> so like there's, there's a, there's an imbalance that I, it, it makes for a very jarring watch. Every it's Leonardo DiCaprio pointing meme. Every time that scene comes up, I'm like right there, she forgot her lines <laughs> yeah. right there. She did not know. Cause that, and that seems dope. And again, like we're going back to like the hyper violence from, from thief all the way here. Like for its time, this movie was really fucking violent. Getting a, getting a, a 50 cow to the face, with, through the car, that scene is still hits hard. Like, they don't make them like this anymore. They stopped making movies like this after this came out. They, they literally stopped. They literally cannot make movies like this. They, everything changed after Miami Vice. Well, it changed in two ways too though, right? Cause like on the one hand, yes, they also, you can't make $150 million adult 
crime drama anymore. Mm-hmm. But also, every movie is shot on higher fidelity digital video now. So some of the like, some of like the cinema verite stuff in Miami Vice, like when the fifty cal is going off and it feels like it's real because it's documentary style. Yeah, like, it, like superhero movies are shot like this now. Like I remember seeing like a weird, yeah. like a weird like blood spatter squib thing in like X Men Days of Future Past, and it fucking pissed me off because I knew that they were <laughs> shot in video now. But it was yeah. like, don't make me, don't ruin this other thing for me, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, and I remember so indelibly that trailer park scene, uh, what Michael Mann was doing with digital. Where like it's it's like a extreme close up on Jamie Fox after he shoots the first guy and then it just does like a one click in and it gets like even closer to his face and you see like all his wrinkles and his furrowed brow I'm like this is uh, I'm 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 bummed because I'm rock hard huh? I'm, I'm bummed because Crockett doesn't get to do a lot in the movie that doesn't involve Naomi Harris's character uh, Trudy he doesn't get a lot to do in the movie he's mainly just the pickup guy. And I felt like in the TV show, it was a little bit more equal between the two, unless I'm mis- misremembering it. But in the movie, in the show, there are definitely more like tub-centric episodes where he does the Crockett stuff, where he falls for some yeah. girl or whatever. Here, I, I don't know how much of it's true. There's a lot of stuff about how Jimmy Fox was like difficult on the shooting of this movie because he just won his Oscar and didn't feel like he yeah. was getting paid enough and all this sorts of stuff. And like, you never know how much of that is like, genuine and how much of that is like some entertainment reporter being an asshole about you yeah but or like, like a pa saying it yeah or like some dickhead that you worked with or whatever it's but it i do think that there were some script changes and that tubs had like more to do in like the original final third of the movie mm-hmm. but then like he didn't like shooting on boats and he didn't like shooting there's just a bunch of stuff he didn't like doing and what's funny about this is like allegedly michael mann only even chose to do this movie because on ali jamie fox kept going you should make a Miami Vice movie. So the idea that it would work and then he would get to play Tubbs and then go, I don't want to be in a boat is really funny to me. Like, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? Yeah, movie? Because, you told because, me to make the boat movie. movie yeah, like, it's Miami. Yeah, and it's, and it's 100% weird because I feel like that's one of the, because it does really feel, uh, it feels, you know, really Colin Farrell centric throughout the whole thing. I mean, even when he's in Cuba, there's a big, was it 10, 15 minutes where you just don't even, you don't know what he's doing, what he's up to. But then he gets that final, real, like, heartbreaking shot at the end where he goes to the hospital and, you know, there's this relationship with he and Trudy. And, you know, not that I have a problem with that. It's just not built upon at all. You just kind of fill in the context. Clearly. I wish it was more of a buddy cop movie in a lot of ways. Yes. And, and yeah. you know what's funny? It's a, it's a buddy cop movie that's not a buddy cop movie. It's, it's absolutely all about, you know, it's, it's all about, uh, about him. And it's not about, you know, Jamie Foxx at all. And I, I just thought it was... I, I, I think in some degree it's like... They, they, they only have to show you a little bit of the stuff with Tubbs and Trudy for you to buy it, right? Yeah. Like that one awkward sex scene and stuff is like really touching and like kind of funny and you, you buy that that's a real unit even though they don't show them very much. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like they have to try to sell you on Crockett's completely made up romance with a person <laughs> he just fucking met. And, and is undercover like, with. and Yeah, like, so you watch all this stuff and at the end of the movie, what does he have? Like nothing, he just goes back yeah. to his job and even though she almost died, like Tubbs has Trudy because that's like real. Like he didn't go meet someone while under being a character. And I don't know how much that's like on purpose, but to me, when I got to the ending on this rewatch, I really felt that like, oh man, like yeah, you got one guy who like does his job, is very serious about it, is very good at it, but isn't like, has no delusions about his job. He doesn't yeah. even like it. Like when she gets in the hospital uh, after the explosion, he's like, I-, I can't imagine her lo- losing her life 
over this bullshit job. Like, he obviously mm-hmm. doesn't even like being a cop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then Jamie, and then Crockett's just like, yeah, yeah, you know, but I'm in love with this girl, so, like, you know. <laughs> so, like, it's kind of funny to me that, like, Jamie Foxx ends the movie with some, I mean, she's hurt and she's injured, but, like, that's real love and they're really bonded. Yeah. And Colin Farrell is just, like, looking at storm season. Like, most of the movie is just him kind of looking at, like, clouds that never actually rain. Yeah. I, I, I do feel like Miami Vice is misunderstood for a lot of the same reasons that we've talked about here. Like, you know, it, it is, it can be a mess, but it's also a fucking beautiful movie. But I, I can't say that I wouldn't, I, I can't say that I wouldn't keep it in the video store. I'll absolutely keep Miami Vice in the video store. Oh, and sure. uh, I think, I think it's one of the, one of the, you know, again, cutting edge, like Michael Mann's always on the cutting edge of shit. What about you, Pat? Yeah, I, I would keep it. I mean, if for no other reason than I've, I felt such shame for like, 14 years that I didn't ever finish watching it. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's an incredibly unique movie uh, just for the people involved when it was released, what it actually is. Uh, like, it's just like no other old, like they did this, you know, like this is not Starsky and Hutch. Like it's, they didn't do what they did with all these other old shows with this movie. And I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag, especially like this isn't a movie I'd recommend to everybody, but uh, I think it's really cool. Uh, Eric, I don't even know if I got to ask, but go ahead. Yeah, it's it's in the store on the uh, rent. Eric, Eric recommends. It's got one of those little cutout <laughs> explosion permanent marker. I'm like a uh, Bokeem Woodbine in uh, the big hit. Just like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, pick, pick of the week. It's the one movie that's over two and a half hours that i watch regularly um, you're so biased sicko yeah. it, it it is he is you know dom said it perfectly it's like to 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 rem, to maintain that level of picturesque painterly composition with digital is it's it's uh it's something we shouldn't take for granted i think he, he still is doing very unique stuff and yeah this movie should not look this beautiful and uh yeah it's it's in my store, baby. All right, so that brings us to the end of this episode of Late Fees. It, this has been such a fucking blast. Uh, definitely one of our one of my favorite episodes we've done so far. Thank you, Mr. Dom Griffin, for being on the show. Anything you want to plug? You, anything yes. you want to tell the anything you want to tell the viewers out there before we get off right <laughs> now? Uh, no, I mean you can just, you can find me on YouTube. It's the the Armchair Outdoors, the name of the channel. Uh, I'm on Twitter at All New Dom. Uh, that's it. I don't have anything cool plug. Yeah, just, that's that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, to plug. That's what, your, that your was, that was one of the cool. only only trustworthy film accounts on Twitter. I'll say. I was that. gonna. Yeah, I was gonna say, man, you have defied all odds because you've we've all three of us, like Pat, Justin, and myself, have all sort of dabbled in film Twitter at a point. Like, I would but we write, hate it. I was like occasionally write for Complex and write reviews, but like you've been firmly planted in there for seven years, and your brain hasn't been broken, and you're not like this pretentious. Uh, I can only tweet positive things that the studio lets me kind of shit. Like, like you said, you're not doing the Funko pop doll shit. Um, so thank, thank you, you for man. being like the one voice of reason out there, man. Thank you, man. All right. So as always, thank you guys for Pat, Pat, where are we going? Where are we going? We, we have Brendan Fraser. Bro, we're doing yeah, Brendan Fraser. Are you, are you fucking serious? So Brendan Fraser on the 25th. Yeah. F- yes. If if you're agreeing to it, then absolutely. Yes. Are we doing I, I, it? If, if we do Brendan Fraser on the 25th, then it's by the You're 25th, in charge yeah. of October. So yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. We have to come up with our October plan. All right. All right. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Finally, the mummy. 
Brendan Fraser uh, is uh, on the 25th of September. We don't know what movies we'll be watching yet. We will make an announcement of what movies we'll be watching just to prepare, prepare you for the episode. Um, and then we will be going into October. We will have a slate of movies that we will be watching. Eric will be there every single episode for those this year. No lacking. No disappearing this year. Sleepaway Camp 3. We're, we're not watching Sleepaway Camp uh, this year. I, may, I might. I'm, I'm going to make you watch. I'm going to. I'm Grown Ups 3. <laughs> that is a horror movie. I feel like you guys are going to try and make me watch an Adam Sandler movie this year. So let me just get that out Wait, of your fucking head. H- Hubby Halloween. Hubby Halloween. No. No, absolutely fucking not. We're not doing that. But we're going to have our October schedule by the next episode for you guys. So uh, make sure you, you, you stay tuned for that as well. Make sure you subscribe to RNC Watch. It is our, you know, it's our channel for all of our movie-related and entertainment-related podcasts. Uh, make sure you subscribe to that. Leave us a comment. Please get our subscribers up, Richard. We're trying to build the channel right now, uh, you know, to, to be as big as the other 50 million RNC channels that we have. But thank you guys for listening and, and being patient with late fees as we get back on our regular cadence again for the fall, all the way into the end of the year. Uh, and until then, thank you guys for listening. Please wash your hands and wear a damn mask as we near the fourth or fifth lap of quarantine <laughs> here. Uh, and for Dom, Patrick, and Eric, I'm Justin. Signing off, the video store is closed. Peace.